Hey everybody, welcome back this week as we walk through the Word together. And as we walk out this truth, we discover that life is produced in us and also in other people. We are walking with one another, growing together to see the life of Christ continue to manifest and birth in us and then to see it spread outside of the walls of our houses and our church building. I just kind of want to pick up, this is not in my notes at all, but while we were just, it kind of goes along with what I feel like God wants us to get into tonight. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the Old Testament in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 30. It's kind of this random crazy story, and I want us to read it together and just draw out a few things about the faithfulness of God and the kindness of God, but also this invitation um, for us to listen to his voice and obey the things that he's saying. But uh, in Ephesians chapter 6, we were just talking about this, about the armor of God. And while we're just struck in my spirit, Paul is writing about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, and he's starting here in verse 10, and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all, stand firm. It's just this language of battle and warfare and that Paul is assuming that when we walk out the door every morning that we are going to face resistance. And I just felt like God wanted me to say right off the bat when we start that you were made for victory. And so even as we speak tonight about some of these things in 1 Samuel 30, at first it could feel heavy and it could feel like that maybe there's like a, like almost a defeated feeling that could come over you, but I want you to know, like, even as we're starting, that you were made for victory. And so that even as things maybe start coming off the rails and that there are things that maybe feel like, man, I'm getting my rear end handed to me right now, that your identity and who you really are, and you're made to win. That is what you are made, and not because of anything you're going to do. You're made to win because of the work of Jesus. And so I'm letting the cat out of the bag for the very end of the talk tonight, but I just want you to know the good news first, is you were made to win. And um, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 30. And, and 1 Samuel chapter 30 kind of starts in a bad spot, kind of in a dark spot. So let me just read a little bit of this story. I love the Old Testament because I like stories. And the Old Testament is just like this brutal, honest look at Israel's unfaithfulness, their constant unfaithfulness, and God's constant faithfulness. So it's this up and down, over and over again. God will be faithful. He'll make promises. Israel will say, we're not going to do bad things anymore. And then you'll turn the page and they're doing worse things than they did before. That's the Old Testament over and over again. And so in this particular story, we have dropped right in the middle of, of David running around with all of his friends, all of his guys. And it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And David and his men came to the city. They found it burned with fire 
and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive. And so, just to sum it up, David and his men had been out uh, fighting in another place. The Amalekites had come in to where their camp had been made, burned it to the ground, and literally taken everything that they had. They came back to just a smoldering heap of nothing. All of their wives had been taken, all of their children, and they just began just to, to weep at the loss of it. Um, the one time I've heard somebody weep like this, uh, my best friend from college, he actually produced a couple of my albums in the past, made some really bad decisions, and I went down to Florida for his sentencing hearing, um, and he was sentenced to 11 years in prison, and he began to cry, and he looked back at his wife, and as they were leading him out of the courtroom, she just fell down to the floor. She collapsed, and she just started to weep at the loss. Um, it was a sound. I'll never forget the sound. It was not crying. It was weeping. And these guys, when they come back and they have just literally lost everything, this, this statement, they wept until they had no more strength to weep. And so I have a first thought for us tonight, and, and it'll make sense in a minute. I, I'm going to flesh it out a little bit for us, but this is the thought that kind of jumped into my head, and this is it. Failure to destroy the enemies of God will always end in tragedy and pain. Failure to destroy the enemies of God in our lives will always end in tragedy and pain. And you may say, well, what in the world does that have to do with this? Have you ever seen a movie? Like there's tons of movies when I was growing up. My dad was like a huge John Wayne movie guy. Was your dad a big John Wayne movie guy? Like we're always watching these John Wayne movies and all these Westerns and Clint Eastwood. But in all these movies, my dad would always watch inevitably there would be this guy and he would let somebody off the hook and then that guy would show back up later in the movie and there would always be some kind of iteration of, I should have killed you when I had the chance. You know, like this kind of, this kind of thought in the movie or it could have been like Scooby-Doo I was watching, I don't know. But there was always like this, I should have killed you when I had the chance, you know. Um, and the first thing to note in this story that it's important, it's gonna make the whole thing make a lot more sense is for us to understand who the Amalekites actually are. It's important. It's important when you get to this part of the story to know who the Amalekites are and to know why they're significant and why this particular enemy of Israel is important. You have to go all the way back to Genesis 36. And we're not gonna go from Genesis 36 to here, but I'm gonna sum up. In Genesis chapter 36, we learn that Esau, who's the brother of Jacob, and you know this story, you know, Esau sells his birthright and all that stuff, and Jacob's a terrible guy. Well, Esau, he has a son named Amalek. Um, and so Amalek goes on to, to father this nation called the Amalekites, uh, and they're horrible people. As a matter of fact, when Israel is wandering in the wilderness, the Amalekites come and attack the people of God there while Moses is leading the people of God out of Egypt. And if you're not familiar with the story, uh, back in Genesis, Genesis ends and the people of God are in slavery to Egypt and, and Exodus starts and there's this guy named Moses. And if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, that old movie, he brings them out, you know, and he leads them through the Red Sea. But while they're wandering in the wilderness, there's this group called the Amalekites and they're giving Israel 
just a horrible time. And they have a battle against the Amalekites and it rages all day. And in Exodus 17, I'll just read you a little portion of this. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. This is what I'm gonna do. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens because God is so for his chosen people that those who are against his chosen people, God takes it very personally. And so he begins to speak and he's like, I'm gonna wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth because they have dared come against my chosen people. And Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So now you're saying, thanks for the history lesson. So what? So Judges ends, the most stinging phrase in the Bible, in my opinion, at the end of Judges is made. At the end of Judges, it says, in those days, there were no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is pretty much going to sum up Israel's history. There's no king. As a matter of fact, when you end Judges, it's two of the most chilling stories that you'll read in the Bible. Horrible, horrible things happen with the children of God participating in it, and this is the way that Judges ends. Man, in those days, there were no king in Israel, and everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. It was complete and total anarchy. And so Samuel, the book of Samuel starts, and the people of God ask for a king, and they get Saul. And Saul is the first king of Israel, and he's actually a terrible king. You would have thought that he would have been a good king because if we were taking like a vote in here, like we were gonna, we need a king, let's look around. If Saul had been in the room with us, would have been like, that guy's the king. He's taller than everybody else. He's athletic, he's handsome, he's well-spoken, people love him, and he is a miserable, terrible, awful king. And as a matter of fact, He's kind of just like Israel. He looks really good on the outside, but he loves himself a whole, whole lot. And he thinks that he's actually a better king than God is. And there's this story where God asks Saul to go make war against the Amalekites. And he says to, to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. God has not forgotten. He has remembered what he said back then. And now he's getting ready to take action. And he says to Saul, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child, infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And here's the thing, Saul does not do it. He doesn't do it. He goes and makes war. He does conquer the Amalekites, but he keeps all the best stuff for himself. As a matter of fact, he lets the king of the Amalekites live because he wants to use him as a bargaining chip. And Saul's failure to obey God is going to have lasting, lasting, lasting consequences for him and his family because in that moment, actually, Samuel's going to show up to Saul and he's going to say, is that the bleeding of goats that I hear over in the stable? And Saul begins to make excuses. He's like, well, you know, this was some really good stuff they had and I kept it because I was going to give it to God. I thought God might be honored if I disobeyed him, kept a lot of stuff that he said I shouldn't keep so that I could turn around and then give it back to the, the very thing he said he didn't want. I'm going to give it to him. Terrible excuse. Awful. And so through the prophet Samuel, God looks right at Saul and says, today the kingdom has been taken from your hands. 
And not only will Saul have the kingdom removed from his hands, his son Jonathan will die along with him on the battlefield. His family will be wrecked because of his disobedience. And when Saul fails to destroy the Amalekites, he is setting up 1 Samuel 30, what we just read. Because the very people that just kidnapped David's family, his wives, his children, all of his men's wives and children, and taken everything that they have are a group of people that are not supposed to exist anymore. Had Saul been obedient, the Amalekites wouldn't have even been an issue. But because Saul was not obedient, the reverberation of his disobedience didn't just affect him, it affected the entire nation. And so that's why I say, first off, failure to kill the enemies of God will have lasting consequences, not just for you, but for the people around you. And I want you to hang on because this is going to start. It could start to feel like, man, this is heavy. I know I've done bad things. I've seen the results of this. Will you just hang on because grace and gospel is coming. But I, but I don't want to miss this point to say there are real and lasting consequences to the decisions that we make. My friend Chad, who is in prison in Miami, we talk weekly. God is doing an amazing work in his life. Revival is breaking out in this prison in Miami. People are coming to faith. God is using Chad in it. He told me last week when we talked, he's like, man, I'm busier than I have ever been. I'm preaching multiple times a week. He's leading worship. Kirk Franklin and Maverick City showed up, and he's in like four videos with them, like leading song. He got to write a song with Brandon Lake. He's getting to do all these things, but here's the reality. He's still in prison for the next 11 years. Like, there are very real consequences. He has two children at home. He has a son. He found out that his wife was pregnant with when he went to prison, that he just gets to see, like, for a couple of minutes every now and then. So there are lasting consequences. God is still using him. God is still faithful. But failure to kill the enemies of God will have lasting consequences. You say, well, man, I don't know the Amalekites. I'm not talking about physical flesh and blood, the Amalekite army tonight, but I am talking about their very real enemies of God all around you that are seeking to pull your heart away from the kingdom of God and place you in opposition to the heart of God. There are enemies all around you. There are enemies all around you. And that's why I read Ephesians chapter 6 to start because I thought that was so perfect because Paul wants us to remember that when we wake up and we go out the door, we are walking into a fight. Like we're walking into a fist fight and beyond every day when you lace your shoes up for the first thing in the morning and you prepare yourself to walk out the door. If you are not in the spirit, if you are not a person of spirit, if you're not prepared for what is about to come to you, you are going to get it handed to you over and over and over again and grieves the heart of God because you were made for victory. You were made for more than that. You were made to win. I think sometimes we've messed up when we think about grace. We have an incomplete picture of what grace is. A huge part of grace is the part that we talk about a lot, and I love that we talk about it a lot because it's true. Grace is the means by which, through Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and the power of his resurrection, that Jesus takes all of the things that you have wrecked and that you have broken and that have brought you pain and he fixes those things and he heals them and he forgives them for you. That's what grace starts. What grace then does is it hands you the ability as a son and a daughter and a member of the kingdom of God to now walk in victory going forward. 
that the things that put you in slavery in the past, you are now freed from those things. You now march out with the Spirit of God, and nothing, no weapon, as the Scripture says, that is formed against you will prosper. That's how you were meant to live. That is why it is so important to put to death the enemies of God. Romans chapter 8 says this, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul is not saying, you know, talk politely to these things. The language is put to death. This is warfare talk that Paul is making. You are in a fight. When you step out the door, you're going to toe the line. There's this old Puritan writer, his name's John Owen. He wrote a, he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. I've read it a few times. I'm going to read a, a section from it for you, and it's kind of old language, but it's really, really beautiful, so just hang in there with it. This is what John Owen said. Let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. He who has once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that ever he began the quarrel. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on our killing the deeds of the flesh. And then John Owen says this, do you kill sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. And this is the line. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. There is no middle ground. In a battle on the front line, there is no passivity to a fight. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The New Testament writers will implore us with phrases like run away from, make war against, kill sin. Is this the image that you have of the importance of being a person of spirit dealing with the things of the flesh? It is an invitation to victory. It is a reminder that you do not battle against flesh and blood. Paul says again in Romans chapter 6, what can we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live, it, live in it? Later on, 6 verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I saw an example of this this week. I was doing this camp, and we were, uh, Lily and I and, and AP and some friends, we were in Missouri at this student camp. And before one of our sessions this week, this girl came up and she's going into the eighth grade and she was crying. And she said, first thing she said is, I gave my life to Jesus last night. And it was beautiful. But then she started telling me her story. She said, my dad overdosed two years ago on fentanyl. And she said, I've been so confused. She said, I started cutting myself. And she's held her arms out like this to me to show the, 
the scars of where she'd been cutting herself. And we just both stood there. I started crying and she was crying. And, and she said, but now I know Jesus loves me. And she started talking about freedom. She said, I want to be free from that. Another little girl heard us talking and came up, these just tiny human beings. And uh, she had heard the girl say that she was cutting and she pulled her sleeve up. She said, I've started cutting too. She said, my parents are getting a divorce. And she said, I don't know what to do. And I just thought about this little girl and I, and I know that her father loved her immensely. And I know that even though he lost his battle to addiction, that he loved her immensely. But I also know that failure to kill the enemies of God in our lives doesn't just affect us, it affects those around us. It affects eighth grade little girls who now don't have a dad. Saul's sin is gonna affect his family. His son Jonathan is gonna lose his life because of it. It is a serious thing to step to the line. This is what sin does and this is what failure to take the enemies of God seriously will bring. And so what do we do? Because I know in this room that some of us sit in this room and, that, and I told you that automatically starts to feel heavy like I know what that feels like. I know what that feels like. I know what it feels like to lose. I know what it feels like not to take sin seriously. I know what it feels like to step out of the door and forget that, wasn't, that I was in a fight and I've been punched in the mouth and I'm bleeding and it hurts. So what do I do now? This is my favorite part of this story because David, as we read the Old Testament, as we'll say, and as, as theologians will say, David is a type of Christ. David is a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to be. As a matter of fact, Christ is called the son of David. He is going to sit on David's throne. We're gonna get a picture of David, like an incomplete kind of fuzzy, grainy picture of the perfection that Jesus is gonna be. And I love it in this story because it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, let's go right back to verse eight. This is David's response. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And the Lord answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And so here's the second thought really quickly. In the midst of pain, seek the Lord. Turn to the Lord. In your loss, turn to the Lord and begin to speak to him. God, what a loss. My whole family is gone. What do I do? And David is a type of Christ. It's just this beautiful picture of what Christ is gonna ultimately do on our behalf. God, they're lost. Read the prophets. Read how God weeps over Israel in the book of Hosea and just hear the son saying to the father, shall I go after them? Shall I pursue? Shall I overtake them and bring them back? And God eventually saying, pursue, for you're gonna overtake and surely rescue. In the midst of your pain, seek the Lord. In times of trouble, Feel the pain as the, as the move towards God. C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Problem of Pain, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When you are hurt, when the battle is raging all around you, turn to the Lord. When, the failure, when your failure and the pain of your failure to take sin seriously is all around, turn to the Lord. This evening, turn to the Lord. Later on, David's going to get a chance to do this in his own life. He's going to make horrible mistakes, horrible mistakes. He's going to be an adulterer. He's going to take another man's wife. He's going to have that man executed, and he's going to be unrepentant of it. But then the prophet Nathan is going to walk right into his living room, and God is going to bring him into a season of pain. And this is David's response to this. 
in Psalm 51, David turns to the Lord and he begins to cry out. And he says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Love this verse. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is what repentance is. God, help me. God, help me. I'm hurt. I've been hit. I've messed up. Help. Please help. I'm weak. And I love the end of the story because this is where we win. When his family has been taken away from him by the Amalekites, David's first response is to seek the Lord, and the Lord's respond. God answers Daniel's prayer, and he says, Pursue, for you will overtake and rescue. And then here's the hope. Here's the gospel. God will answer you, and he will bring victory, because that's what God does. And here's where the story gets really interesting. When God says, Go pursue, David takes his 600 guys, and they just start running. I love the image of it. They literally pick up their weapons and they just start to run. They run so hard that 200 of them just fall down in exhaustion and can't go any farther. And David and those men just call back over their shoulder like, don't worry about it, we're gonna keep going. And they run and they run and they run and they run towards the fight, towards the enemy. And when they catch up to the Amalekites, they see them having a party down in the valley below with all of their stuff. <laughs> and that makes them unhappy. The Amalekites think that they've won. And then it says in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 17, and David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped. David finished what Saul was supposed to finish. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. God delivers everything that has been lost back into the hands of David, reunited with families. I love to imagine the scene of David walking up to his children who had been taken and then fallen into dad's arms as he has just fought on their behalf and completely rescued them. What a reunion. Families reunited. Warfare is hard. Battle is bloody. Victory is sweet. Families reunited. But what it really reminds me of is Jesus in Luke chapter 19. Because in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is moving towards the cross and he looks over Jerusalem and he begins to weep. This word is the kind of weeping that David and his men did when they showed up and found that their wives and family had been taken. Jesus begins to weep in this way as he's looking over Jerusalem on the way to the cross because he realizes what has been taken and what has been lost and he begins to weep. And then Jesus goes to the cross to do battle against our enemies because we were too tired to go any farther. We could not fight, so he fought on our behalf. And he won. Our enemy was death. Our enemy was sin. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, he says, where's your victory? 
Oh, death, where is your sting? He goes on, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin, the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is the hope and here is the answer. When we have been beaten, when things have been taken for us, when we repent, when we turn to God, when we fall in his arms, Jesus as the true king comes in on our behalf. He fights our battles. He takes back everything that he was taken and he reunites us with the father. Family, once again, that is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope that is being offered to you tonight. In your pain, in your addiction, in your failure, in your failure to take sin seriously, in your failure to walk in holiness, in your failure to walk out the door and, and engage in a way where you're going to have victory, Jesus is going to fight on your behalf and he is going to bring you victory. And he's going to deliver you to the Father unscathed because that is the power of the gospel. Because Jesus did not stay on the cross. Jesus rose and the spoil of victory is us. At the end, they start shouting, this is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. He takes back all the stuff back to the camp, and they're saying, this is David's spoil. We are Christ's spoil. We're the spoil of victory. And we will with him sit at his feet. And we'll say, worthy is the lamb who was slain, the king who came and got us out of slavery, and he brought us back home. The victory belongs to Jesus, and Jesus in his love and mercy has shared with his people the spoils of victory. And so I want to offer you just really simple good news tonight and a challenge. The good news is tonight you were made to win. I was made to win. I was made to run fast and I was made to win. It's my birthright. I was made to walk with like this Holy Spirit swagger when I walk out of the door because I'm a person of spirit. I've actually been told by God in this word to not be afraid of anything. God has given me as a son the right to walk out the door and whatever comes to me if I'm walking in the spirit, God says, I want you to look right back and say, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> that is my birthright. But I don't always walk in that birthright. Sometimes I wake up and I, I don't put on the armor and I walk out and I get hurt and Jesus is still fighting on my behalf. And so I just want to encourage you tonight. Jesus is fighting on your behalf. Jesus is undefeated. He's never lost a fight. And he's going to fight on your behalf. And the second thing, that's the hope. The second thing is the challenge. As Jesus begins to pour grace upon grace over your, over your life, this is my prayer for you that you begin to walk in victory. It is yours. It's for you. It's who you were meant to be. You were meant to breathe in and out the Spirit in a way where you sing, see the kingdom of heaven come to bear on the earth. I love to think about the disciples, these guys who were terrified in the boat about a storm, and then like two years later, they'll march into hell itself to declare the kingdom of God because God has absolutely transformed who they are. And that's what I believe God wants to do for you. And so just for a minute, will you just set your stuff down and we're gonna pray for a second and then we're gonna sing a song together that just says that Jesus is all I want. In the midst of my anxiety and my pain and my struggle, Jesus is all I want. And as we move in that direction to sing these words, I'm gonna invite you just to take your hands and hold them right out in front of you just like this as an offering of surrender. 
as we sing, this, this, this place down here at the front of this stage, it can be a place of altar for you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to pray victory over you, whatever you need. But will you just take your hands and will you offer them to Jesus tonight? And would you just pray something really simple like this? Jesus, I'm sorry I haven't taken sin seriously. Will you fight on my behalf and bring victory? My birthright is victory and I want to follow you. Holy Spirit, fill me up. I've been a person of flesh. I want to be a person of spirit. In this battle against flesh and blood, I want to be the aggressor. Jesus says, for those who fight under his banner and are filled with his spirit, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. I had a mentor that used to say all the time, you know, when we read Jesus saying that, sometimes we think that we're hiding behind the gates and the enemy's trying to break them down and, and we're just hanging on from dear life. And he said, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that we are attacking the gates of hell and that hell is afraid of us. So he would say, so go put on your gate kicking shoes. It's time to go free some slaves. It's time to get into the fight. It's time to put on your gate kicking shoes. It's time to be a person of spirit. It's time to, under the banner of Christ, realize the victory that he has for you and walk in the kingdom in a way that is so beautiful and gives you so much purpose and gives you so much confidence in who Jesus is and what he's offering. And so Jesus... Even today, even tonight, while we sing this song and we think of the things of heaven, God, will you fill this group up with your spirit? God, give us your Holy Spirit, sons and daughters of the Most High. God, send us against the gates of hell. We want to put on our gate-kicking shoes. God, we want to toe the line right along with you. The spoils are yours. They're your spoils. It's your glory. It's your fight. But Jesus, we want to be right alongside of you. So God, do that in this room even tonight. God, that chains would be broken. Freedom would be given. Invite us into the kingdom. We pray it all in the name of Jesus, God, for your glory.